Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name is Dennis Schuler. I'm your host and moderator of Vendapunk, Inflection Points for Senior Leaders. And I'm, um, listen, I'm usually excited to do these interviews, but I'm especially excited to be with Greg Jackson today, who's the Chief Executive Officer of Octopus Energy. Now, Greg and I have not seen each other in over 23 years. We were both in the UK. I was a young HR leader on, on my first assignment <clears throat> outside the country. And Greg was an assistant brand manager in the, an entry level role uh, within the brand or marketing organization. I always remember him as a bright uh, young guy that was very passionate. And so it's gonna be especially, um, I think interesting for me and uh, kind of almost old home week to go back and visit uh, a friend from the past and see what he's been up to. Now, uh, as I mentioned, he's the CEO of Octopus Energy. And just by way of background, let me give you a little bit of, uh, of texture for this interview. Octopus Energy is a UK-based retail electricity and gas supplier specializing in sustainable energy. So they're leading the green wave here. The company not only supplies energy in a differentiated manner, both on cost and on service, but the company also licensed software called Kraken to other energy suppliers that help balance consumption with off-peak demand periods. Greg started the business, quote unquote, because we wanted to make energy better. People in the UK had suffered too long at the hands of established suppliers. They were having to pay too much and were given the runaround too often. Octopus has grown in a lightning fast clip, achieving double unicorn status in the UK by becoming the first startup in the energy sector to achieve a two billion, think about that, two billion dollar valuation its first five years of operation. And recently, Octopus announced the acquisition of Octopus Renewables that will see the company add $3.4 billion worth of green energy projects in its portfolio. Now, Octopus is taking on what's called the big six entrenched energy providers in the UK and doing what many thought were, was really un, impossible to do by serving customers more fully and building a nimble, mission-driven, customer service-oriented organization. Octopus Energy's Glassdoor rating is 4.8 out of 5, and their Trustpilot score is also 4.8 out of 5. Now think about that. Think about that quality of the organization serving the customer. Greg himself is self-described as a passionate, creative, innovative CEO, entrepreneur, and investor who loves building organizations around people, disrupting industries which underserve both customers and society. He's had ex extensive experience starting up several other software platforms and assisting other entrepreneurs. He's a graduate of Cambridge University with a degree of economics. Finally, he's also one of the most innovative thinkers about organizations and their design, preferring very flat organizations, inverting the pyramid and creating environments where people are free and willing to give their all. He is also on record in a BBC interview that he does not have an HR or IT support department because they invariably, these are my words, take responsibility away from those that should make decisions and create heavy process that suck the competitive juices out of the organization. So I'm excited to see Greg for three reasons. First, his view on HR, which I happen to su subscribe to. Second, we worked together many years ago at P&G in the UK. We were both much younger. I was on my first international assignment and Greg was a new hire as an assistant brand manager in the marketing group. And this was a very formative period in both of our careers. So I'd be interested to see how that shaped his thinking on organizations. 
And third, most importantly, he's at the helm of the hottest and probably the most impactful startup in Europe. And if it isn't the hottest and most impactful, it's certainly one of the most. As I said, I've not seen him in over 25 years. So this should be fun catching up and talking about what makes successful, impactful businesses and leaders. Welcome to Vendepunk, Greg. So glad to see you again. You know, you you, you left P&G. You've had you've done some really interesting entrepreneur uh, stuff in the uh, startups in the software space. But you know, before we got into the details on that, I wanted to just get a sense of what were the influences on your life that got you to this point? Because we all are shaped by people, events, uh, situations that define our core and what makes us tick and what motivates and drives us. What were those for you? Yeah, it's a, you know what? I think for me, it really began in childhood. Um, I was brought up by a single mother. Uh, she had three kids and, um, uh, you know, uh, on a very low income, um, working in a pub, a bar in the evenings, uh, going to college during the day and somehow making it all work. And I think um, very early, there were two or three lessons and experiences there for me and conscious and subconscious. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, one of them was um, what hard work really looks like. You know, hard work is not owning a car and carrying a week's worth of shopping uh, and having three kids under the age of eight, including a baby, mm -hmm. traveling by bus um, and then going out to work in the evening after. You know, And I think um, understanding um, yeah, um, and being very comfortable with that hard work has been important. I think another is actually understanding that uh, if you can do that, you can do most things. And I think that leaves you feeling very comfortable that you can take risks because, you know, if the worst that happens is you go back to a world like that, well, you've done it before, you can do it again. And I think that actually gives a tremendous amount of freedom. Certainly as an entrepreneur, that you can... Uh, choose to do things that don't have the same security that a lot of people in corporate world kind of need or feel they need. Yeah. Um, and I think the third thing though is it kind of um, gave me a, a, a real passion, a, a sort of sense of um, we need to make the world better so that people who, um, you know, people don't have to live like that and, and that people can, there's a better future available for people. Um, and, and I think um specifically for example we're in the energy sector and one of the reasons is i know that high energy bills are particularly painful for people on low incomes and you know we've got the opportunity to drive those energy bills down whilst we go renewable and so i think there's a whole bunch of things you know both in terms of how i view the world and what i want to do with my own time and also kind of the opportunities we've got to make the world better yeah, I, I would I would echo that. You know, if I look at my own, and this is not this is not about you, me. It's about you. But I grew up in a family where uh, my father worked two jobs. <clears throat> he worked midnight to eight, and then he delivered furniture during the day. I don't know how he did it, but he did it most of the most of my time when I was growing up. And he had no safety net. Either you did or you didn't. And so, you know, people always ask me, even now that I'm in my sixties. Why do you still like to work and why, what drives you is, is that, I don't know if it's in your head, but it's that fear of, um, I don't want to go, I know I can go back there, but I don't want to go back there. And there, I'll do everything I can to stay ahead of it, I'll work hard and and uh, hopefully things work out. Um, which I wanted to ask you, um, 
this is this is kind of what I've been thinking about, and I don't have a good answer for it, but maybe you do. Um, yeah, I'm thinking back. I don't want to dwell on PNG too much because we that's in our rearview mirror. But when I look back on the PNG class of hires in the in that mid '90s thing, let me just rattle these people off to you and just see if you can kind of give me kind of the why is it so, uh, Greg? But you got Gavin Patterson who was the former BT CEO, now I think he's the CEO or number two at Salesforce. Tim Davies, who's running the BBC. Phil Jansen, who's the BT CEO that was running WorldPay. Jane Wakely, CMO at, at Mars. Zaid's over at CMO at Channel 4. Lance Bachelor, he was the guy that I had create the Brooklyn's transition package way back when as an ABM. He's now a chairman in private equity uh, Stephen Gray, Greenhouse, I don't know if you remember Stephen, he's a minister in the government. Matthew Price, who stayed with P&G's running China, big business, Austin, we talked about, Barton Warner. And then he had Pullman and De La Puente. All came from that same seed corn. What do you make of that? And, and yourself, who's been fabulously successful um, in a variety of different situations, what do you make of that? Is there any trend there? Or is it just serendipity? Is it just um, kind of an occurrence? Uh, and we'd throw more in, couldn't we? Like Stuart Quickenden, who was yes. managing partner for Boston Consulting Group in, in, in um, all the world except the US, I think. Yeah. So I think, um, look, I joined PNG uh, from university where I'd been the president of our college's student union. And I think PNG had this incredible uh, recruiting criteria and appeal, which was that um, it looked for leaders. And uh, where are the universe, uh, other recruiters were looking for different things? What Procter & Gamble was looking for was people who'd been presidents of the student union, active in politics, um, presidents of sports clubs, sports captains, but people who saw uh, an opportunity, grabbed it and ran with it and took other people with them. And, and people who wanted to make a difference. And, and I think, you know, that transcended academics. I'm sure that most people are good academics as well, but, yeah. but that was paramount. And so what you're seeing here, I think, is that, it, you know, that incredible long-term view PNG used to have, which was, uh, you know, they weren't hiring people to do the job of an assistant brand manager. They were hiring people to, you know, run countries. Yeah. Yeah, run country businesses. And I think um, that meant that what they were hiring, you know, as new starts were all designed in 15 years. You know, they've gone to great things. And, and you're reeling those off. And it, it, it tells me that, for those that stayed at PNG, it's probably got a tremendous number of great leaders. And for those that have gone to other things, that you know, PNG has got uh, you know a sort of an incredible reputation for building great careers. Right, exactly. And uh, you know, I, I just uh, I, I find it remarkable um, that uh, you know there's this machine, and uh, some some choose to stay. Like I had the longer run, you choose you chose the low. Uh, to leave to go on to become a, a very successful entrepreneur. What attracted you to, to do that, Greg? Um, there had to be some sense uh, after a period of time at PNG. It was like, hey, this is not for me. I got what I need. Now I'm going to go and do what I want. I think um, describe that choice for me, if you would. Uh, it's interesting. I think there's an interplay there. So without talking about PNG too much, yeah, there was something else that PNG did, which is um, it had a whole set of principles around what mattered in business. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, it had a mission that was about putting consumers first, about making the world better and 
um, doing a great job for the societies in which we operated. Um, it wasn't a financial mission. And similarly, I think um, we were trained that building the organization, doing the right thing by each other and by uh, the people was as important as driving business results. And I think for me, that had really attracted me, but it also you know, kind of gave me and some of the people describe, I suspect, a very rounded vision of what business can be. Um, and in the books like Built to Last, yes, that, that carry the PNG story, um, are inspiring. And I think um, I probably never intended to stay at PNG for as long as four years, um, but I enjoyed it and, and I was getting a tremendous amount out of it. And I hope I was giving something back. But um, that vision about what business can do almost inspires you to want to go and do it on the biggest stage you can, as fast as you can. Um, and, and it's interesting for me, and we could talk about this later maybe, but um, business has never been about money. You know, money is the outcome. outcome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it might be the enabler, but it's not the objective. Um, you know, and, and, and I think there's a book by a guy called John Kay, uh, who writes for Financial Times. The book's called Obliquity. And similarly, I think that the subtitle is how your goals are best achieved indirectly. Hmm. And what he talks about is a very PNG philosophy, which is you build a great business that tackles big problems that are important to society. And chances are you'll create more value than businesses that are focused just on financial objectives. Uh, and, and certainly you've got a better chance of riding the sort of waves of, 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 of the economy. Um, and waves of change because if you're doing fundamentally important stuff then uh, as the world changes around you your purpose stays true whereas for companies that are continually chasing a profit you know as the world changes they've got to change direction all the time so I guess there were a bunch of things there that inspired me um, to to take forward that passion that I talked about at the beginning really for, for making the world better yeah, and I, as I'm listening, I'm smiling because I'm looking at this little, uh, again, I don't keep a lot of artifacts, but I do this because I thought, at least for me, it was a special moment. But I, I haven't looked at the bottom of it in probably 20 years, but I'm listening to you talking, and the on the bottom of this thing is a quote, we who are first had the responsibility and opportunity to leave a trail for those who are to, who are to follow us. To your point, you know, I think Collins would say that was clock building versus time telling right, in terms of how you build organizations for the long haul. Yeah, that's great. And then, by the way, um, you're holding that model of Brooklyn's, the office, which is my first, you know, it's the first time I moved into a new office. And um, I remember some of the speeches you and our general manager at the time, Tim Pennegate. Yes. And there was an amazing moment when uh, one of you said, um, you know, this is our chance for a fresh beginning. And I think you understood symbols. And that was a really important symbol. And it was a business that hadn't been doing well. But one thing you said was, um, uh, from now on, we're going to ask people to do the things they are good at because that will make them happier and more successful. Instead of what we used to do, which is getting them to do things they weren't good at in the hope they would improve. But actually all that did was make me people miserable and drive bad results. And I just thought that's an incredible idea. Get people to do what they're good at. And that's been a foundation for me for everything I've done since. Yeah, it's born out of the theory that most people, you know, you can get more bang for your buck by leveraging somebody that's got a strength in an area than working on, my dog just has appeared, um, than working on stuff that's uh, minutia. Um, and it's like, let's get focused. So I think the Brooklyn thing was, let's get rid of all the old behavior and old habits. 
and let's kind of, we got a new building, new behaviors, new organization, let's go run. The disappointing for, thing for me, I uh, have to say going back, and we'll get to this a little bit later about how HR people sometimes can screw up things. Remember we put in a coffee bar in the center there, which was yeah. my clear intent was we wanted people to come down into, the, into that area. And so we made coffee free. It's like, come on down. That's where ideas percolate. That's where relationships get built. And then I go back there, uh, it was like six, seven years later, and like the coffee bar, now you have to pay because I go to get a coffee, go, well, you know, where's your, where's your pounds? And I go, I go what, well, it was a cost savings. We, we wanted to save $40,000 on coffee. It's like, you guys, you guys have missed the total plot here. Um, well, the good news, Dennis, is if you come to Oxford Percentages office, any of our offices, you'll find the whole thing is designed around things like the coffee area, which by the way is free. Mm -hmm. along with other things that help yeah. people congregate and feel valued and enjoy work. Good on and you. that was inspired by what you did there. So thank you. Good on you. Well, I, you know, I, when I was at Disney, not to, not to believe the point, but I, I remember going up to see Pixar and they had this wonderful building that Jobs and Ed Catmull had designed. And there were, I think, as I recall, I think I recall correctly, there were no bathrooms. It was a three-story building. There are no bathrooms on the second and third floor. They intentionally made them down on the ground floor so you had to come out of your office go down and then they had this huge cafeteria open plan and, and coffee bar that was their ideation area that's what was the the driver for their creativity that spawned a lot of these beautiful movies obviously well let's do a bit more loving then because here's I, I, obviously the pandemic's changing how people think about offices <laughs> yeah. but um since we started our company we've built a number of offices and every one of them we're, we're building on the learnings but for example um we tried to build offices where desks are at 45 degrees or 30 degrees to corridors um so that um when you when you're walking through the office you have to wave around the desks and you have to make eye contact with the people as you go that, so we don't have a, a sort of a highway that bypasses a bunch of a bunch of perpendicular desks everyone's got human contact um i think the second thing uh, that we put a lot of effort into like that is um We've always tried to have offers on a single floor, and that means we're taking bigger and bigger single floors, because what we find is that that encourages, it enables a lot more mingling, as you describe at Disney. They, they try and kind of create a, a ground floor experience. Mm -hmm. And I think um, where we've been able to do that, we've actually taken two contiguous floors and they cut a hole in the floor between them so that people can see each other through the hole, up and down a big, great round hole. Uh, and then... Um, a big sweeping staircase but it's all designed around what people can see and then of course because we're a decentralized organization some of our young people decided to put a slide in as well but the whole thing really was about creating contact between our team all the time yes indeed <laughs> this is great this is great i love it um we're going to go deeper on that in just a second greg but i was i just wanted to go back to just uh thinking about entrepreneurship and how that might diff be different from working in large companies because I think you 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 articulate you took some lessons away, but then you pivoted and designed and drove a lot of businesses uh, with your own vision. What makes a successful entrepreneur, and why do some make it? And why do others not? What's what's the what's the core there? And first of all, luck is incredibly important, right? Um, you can load the dice with some natural phenomena, and how hard you work and good decision making, but you're still rolling dice. And I think it's interesting for me that probably my fifth roll of the dice has been by far the best. 
I've definitely got better at waiting as I go, but there's no doubt that if the dice rolled differently, I might have been lucky first time or unlucky this time. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that um, I don't idolize entrepreneurship um, and I don't advocate it for everyone. Um, I think uh, entrepreneurship comes with real challenges and downsides that you have to be ready for. I, I used to race motorcycles badly and the, um, uh, the UK official guide to motorcycle racing opens with a forward by a professional racer who says, look, if you're going to race motorcycles, we need to talk about injuries. And then he reels off all the bones you're going to break. He says, like, if you're still reading this and you want to race motorcycles, it's for you. And I think it's a bit like that with entrepreneurship. You need to understand that you may end up, you know, by the way, at one point, Dennis, I was, uh, I can't remember, I was 27 or 30 years old and I had a million pounds of debt and no job. You know, entrepreneurship can take you through tough times. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's hard, particularly if you've got responsibilities. I think the second thing is, it, um, I read a book on entrepreneurship in which it said, look, you know, um, your friends, you're not going to see very much of them, right? You're going to be asking sacrifices of your family and everyone close to you because the intensity is unmatched and it can go on for years and years and years. Um, and you kind of got to be ready for that because um, as an entrepreneur, you can't kind of like just turn your phone off and walk away and say, well, I'm on holiday and that's someone else's problem. If something happens, it's yours. I, I think the, um, but the flip of that is for people who are comfortable with those kind of serious sacrifices and risks, um, the opportunities, it's someone who really has a vision about what they want to do. So, um, uh, you know, uh, for me, I think we all do, we all sit in the pub with our friends, right? And we talk about how the world could be better. And the entrepreneur is the person who says, I'll tell you what, I'll put my life on the line to make it better in that way. Mm-hmm. That is, I think, the kind of defining characteristic. Um, and, and then there's this tremendous joy and freedom that you're able to make the decisions yourself. Never, never do you wake up, as an, I hope anyway, as an entrepreneur, and kind of feel cynical that you're just doing someone else's bidding, mm-hmm. that you're working on something that may well be pointless. You know, you have the choice to make every moment count. And speaking of that, you know, I, I noticed the things you've run and you've been involved in is where you're disrupting. And, and there, God, if there isn't a sector that needs to be disrupted, which is energy, you're taking on the big six. What's that like? Tell me about that. It's, it's incredible fun. Um, I think they start with the advantage. They've got big balance sheets, large numbers of customers, big teams, some of whom are very, very talented. Um, and, and reputations that even though they may have a mixed reputation as a brand, they've got a good reputation as part of kind of the economy. On the other hand, we start with the benefit of a clean sheet. Um, yeah, the opportunity, we've got no legacy assets, no legacy uh, behaviors. We've got the chance to uh, raise the money and build an organization that is designed to do everything better, not to defend the past. And, and I think um, for us, you, you know, the opportunity to think about the biggest challenge facing humanity and climate change um, and to see ways in which we can help speed up and reduce the cost of the fight against climate change is an astonishing. Loads of people talk about purpose-driven businesses, and you know we're not crafting a purpose onto something we happen to do. We are founded with that purpose. So I guess you know that's a tremendous opportunity and a tremendous privilege. And I think where we stand today is we've got 2.2 million household customers in the UK. We are now one of the big six. We're number six. Uh, in scale, if not behavior. And, um, but I think um, 
you know, this is a sector which is, it's like a shaking a $2 trillion snow globe. No one knows where all the pieces are going to land, but it's getting shaken up. And I think it's our job to do some of that shaking. Good for you. I love it. And, you know, as you grow now, you're, you're, you're on the fast climb here um, and you're getting bigger. Um, how do you keep your organization focused on those key success factors, Greg, that underpin where you've been? Because many companies that enter into high velocity, high growth end up losing the plot because the organizations can't, the structure of the organization can't keep up with the growth. How do you, how do you manage that? Yeah. So I think, and, and this takes into the world of, of uh, HR and people management. Uh, we've got to be uh, a business built of leaders because, uh, you know, strategy is very difficult in a sector that is undergoing rapid mm -hmm. disruption. It's particularly difficult when you're the disruptor. So, you know, we can't take a bunch of historical figures and extrapolate them and then build our plan accordingly. Instead, we have to look at a problem. You know, how are we going to decarbonize heating? How are we going to uh, enable electric vehicles to charge without requiring lots of extra infrastructure and cables. How are we gonna enable households to benefit from cheaper renewables rather than seeing renewables as a problem? Now we, we, we can set out those sorts of challenges and then give the, um, uh, that challenge to a team and enable them to make the decisions about what our company will do consistent with our vision and our values and our capabilities to tackle that problem. And, and as a result, we have um, a relatively small number of high performance teams, each focused on specific issues like that. Um, and I think, um, again, so some of the, the, the philosophy behind that is management as an enabler. You know, it's not command and control. They yeah. tell us what they want to do and they come to us and we help solve the problems. But, you know, um, if we try to do this through command and control, there isn't a, a there isn't a, a strong enough, fast enough feedback loop that would prevent them from pursuing goals that are wrong. Because we'd set a goal, they go off after it, and by the time we realised that the world had changed or disruption wasn't happening in that space the way we thought it would, it would be too late, and they'd be wasting all that effort. And so, by creating powerful decision makers with strong sense of values and and um, and what we stand for. And then being there to help them, I hope that we're staying super lean, moving very, very quickly, um, but doing so in a really, you know, a really purposeful way. Yeah, uh, many companies kind of liken that to inverting the pyramid. Um, you know, I just interviewed um, one of the companies we own as an occasion dress company in Los Angeles, two founders, two brothers that have run it for 25 years, two of the really coolest uh, folks I've been around. And they talk consciously about their successes. They've got 225 stores. Is celebrating the front line because that's where that's where the business takes place. And if if you're tight on command and control, you lose sense of what the customer wants, the trends that are underpinning what their wants are, and eventually become irrelevant. You get outpaced. I I love that. So I mean, first of all, I hadn't heard that phrase before, but I talk about the upside down pyramid. Mm -hmm. um, and a good example would be customer operations and in, in some companies, customer service. Yes. And we call it customer operations because the team are given a lot more autonomy and a lot more responsibility. So they're not just kind of you know, typing stuff into a computer and reading out the results. They're making decisions in real time about how they're going to organize themselves, 
about how they're going to fix customer issues, uh, about what they're going to prioritize. Um, and our CTO, uh, my co-founder, um, James Edison, he, he says, you know, the operations teams are gods and it is our job to serve them. Right now, you know, in a tech company, that is the, ordinarily the, the CTO would be the god. Right. Right. But here he is putting himself in the service of, of, of the people that actually look after our customers. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the way we see it. Yeah. And I just wanted to take it a little bit further if I could, because you guys are expanding into Germany, US, Australia. You've got link ups now. How do you protect and nurture your culture, make sure it's consistent? Or do you want it to be consistent as you expand internationally? So there's some stuff that we want to be consistent. Um, yeah, we want our brand. Uh, to stand for, you know, outstanding value for customers, to be uh, a brand which always puts longer-term custom value ahead of short-term profits. Um, we want it to stand for uh, driving decarbonization relentlessly and without question. So there's some stuff we stand for, both as a brand and a company, that, that will be the same everywhere. Um, we will always build things on our tech platform, a platform called Kraken. Even if a country thinks that they could do something faster or more readily by taking some off-the-shelf software from someone else, we won't do it. We will hold up until Kraken is able to do the job for them because that's a long-term investment in our core value, the driver of value, our platform, which has to be global. Um, but you know the way in which um, you know, a country decides to organize itself on a day-to-day basis, whether they um, are aiming to, you know, win customers in channel A or channel B, whatever it be, entirely up to them. And they can innovate um, on new ideas and products and services without having to get permission. And if things happen there that are successful, then we want that to be available for every other country in the world to roll out. Um, So I think that's really important. In terms of how we manage the people, you know, different countries have got different styles because they're built around the, the strengths of, of the founding team in those countries. And a bit like we spoke earlier, let's capitalize on what those founding teams are good at. Mm-hmm. Um, but we will always treat people, our people, um, as being um, as important as, more important than immediate business results. That's, that's non-negotiable. So I think, you know, values are consistent. Drivers of global value are consistent, and everything beyond that. We love heterogeneity. Yeah, it's uh, it's understanding and protecting your core, and then make make the rest of it more tailored to what the needs are in the local market. That, that makes good yeah, sense. and and what the capabilities of the team are. Right, everything yeah. everything's about the people. If people are good at something, uh, it's really interesting, right? We've got a team in New Zealand that are good at some stuff that was never going to be the plan for New Zealand, but they're brilliant at it. So let them run. Let them run. Yeah. 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 Hey, let's talk hiring just for a minute. I read, uh, I watched a little bit of, uh, there was a, there was a really nice uh, YouTube clip. This is my first job. Oxpers Energy seemed like an okay company. Customer operations sounded like an easy ride. I don't really care about the whole environmental thing, you know, sustainable energy, you know, yada, yada, yada. I thought I'd enjoy it more, to be honest. 
I mean, I mean, I mean talking to the, the, the people, it is impossible. Their, their, their problems are a nightmare, uh, usually with their form of supplier. I, I don't know why Octopus just doesn't have a script like everyone else. I love talking to the customers. You get to think on your feet because there's all there's so many different problems or queries or things that need sorting out. I find it very satisfying helping customers. And there's nothing like getting off a phone call and feeling like you've helped them. Everyone's really helpful. Everyone's dead keen to help you out if they can. Yeah. People at Octopus Energy are so friendly, genuinely so friendly. It's got a real sense of community about it, 100 percent It feels really good to be part of a company that's actually achieving things. We really are on the rise and we've taken over a few companies as well. So Irisa, we took over about 90,000 customers. Effect as well, we took over about 30,000 customers with them. Octopus are really keen to hear our feedback. If there's anything that we feel needs tweaking or updating, we get in touch with the tech team and say, hey, is there a chance for improvement? With the people talking to the customers and dealing with it firsthand, so we're the best ones really to give that feedback. Just knowing that I work for a renewable energy company, it's so important to my core values. It's always a nice feeling to know that you've helped someone who was having problems. It's great to be part of a, a, an organisation that genuinely, genuinely wants to help customers. Well, thank you very much. I hope it all works out. Uh, yeah, I don't think I'll be here much longer. <laughs> <laughs> well, you could say that. Well, yeah, yeah probably. <laughs> I'm Greg Jackson, founder of Octopus Energy. Octopus is a great place to start a career. Uh, customer operations is the very heart of the business. It's the thing I'm so passionate about. So we're looking for bright people who really enjoy a challenge. If that's you, come and join us. Uh, your branding on, on how you hire and how you recruit, you have a cameo appearance at the end of that. But it was kind of a tongue-in-cheek of a guy that kind of doesn't quite fit in. But I think the message is, you know, there's standards. We're a team. We're trying to drive things. That was really well done. Um, how do you make sure you're attracting the right caliber of people, uh, not for today's business, but since you're on such a huge scale, scale up, uh, how, do you, how do you hire for that future? And then how do you make sure that you've got people moving along on their development path that'll, that'll intersect where your business is going? Because, you know, again, I work in private equity. A lot of our companies, we, we, we buy smaller companies, 100, 200 million. Um, but often what we find is that what you got you there won't get you to the next layer of growth. And that often that's because the organization hasn't kept up, hasn't been developed, hasn't anticipated. So how do you get in front of that dynamic, Greg, in your business? So I think there's probably three things. The first one is from the beginning, um, to quote someone else, we'd rather have a hole than an asshole. That was one of the founders of Innocent Drinks. Yeah. Um, and so it doesn't matter what pressure there is to fill a recruitment gap. Um, we'd rather the business had to wait till the right person or a person who was going to be right came along than uh, just put someone in yeah. to solve the problem because it'll create more problems in the long run. Yeah, the warm body syndrome. Think, yeah. Yeah. I, I think, and, and, and it's so counterproductive. I think the second thing is that we um, really take internal responsibility for it. So we have internal recruiters. We very rarely use external recruitment agents. 
our internal recruiters are hyper productive. Um, you know, I think I think between two of them, they hired 150 people last year. Um, between two people, and, and the um, and and that was not in the sort of core operations where we've got a lot of people with very similar kind of criteria. This was everyone was a sort of an individually defined role type, uh, and I think the um, uh, really taking control of things as a business we do in every stage. Uh, and I think then the third bit is by having been consistent on our values and what we believe in, what we're doing for society and for customers and for our people has actually become a real beacon of attraction. So unusually, you know, for example, in software, which is so hard to recruit for mm. in tech development, mm-hmm. we've got a queue of people. Like we've, we're, we're inundated with people wanting to join. And I think that is really interesting because that's a sort of multi-year payback on decisions that we made years ago, but it's really working. For you, I mean, that, that is key, uh, obviously, to, you know, we used to call it what the lifeblood of the organization is, getting the right talent and get them the right, right spots and then powering them up and let them run. Um, what do you see, just, just as, a, um, as an additional layer on that, what do you see as the link between diversity, equality, inclusion, yeah. and innovation? Because in my mind, there's a tight link there, but I'd like to get your view on uh, how you see that from your, your standpoint. Uh, we've been learning about diversity from the beginning. Um, uh, our three founders are all white male, but one's gay. Um, you know, uh, one's from a very non-privileged background. Um, but you know, um, women look at that group and they go, "Well, there's no one like me." Mm. Um, and as we grew, uh, you know, you can't change your founders. But our next level of management, um, you know, we've uh, really. Um, made sure we hire the best people and that has naturally delivered us roughly 50 50 at, at the sort of the, the executive committee level male and female and i think quite interestingly in startup world it's a dynamic i've seen before that often i mean for whatever reason founders are dramatically more likely to be male um and if you're not careful you build an organization that's just projecting that founder group mm-hmm. and we've been careful to avoid that and actually as we bring more women in so more women want to come and work here. And, and I think by sort of really leaning into that early on, we've had a reasonable gender diversity outside of the founder team. Um, I think though that the, the sort of um, Black Lives Matter movement caused incredible introspection. It was probably the toughest period for me as a leader as I thought really hard about actually, although we felt we were good on diversity, massive um uh kind of sexuality diversity we had um a a reasonably good diversity on on gender and then i realized you know a young black person looking at our company could see no one like themselves in the leadership and i think that was a real wake-up moment i think it was also a wake-up moment to discover for a company when we listened to our black and and um minority ethnic workforce telling us about their life experiences and you realize that you know uh, sort of there's a reasonable percentage of the population here in the uk and in other countries whose experience of walking down the street Mm. is different than Mm -hmm. mine and um i think that really led us to think extremely hard about first of all what is our role in tackling those problems and certainly how can we have a company that you know, doesn't perpetuate those issues. And so we spent a lot of time there and we actually ended up, 
we, what we didn't want to do was make some a couple of tweets about standing with our black workers and then moving on. We wanted to make a real difference. So we set up a foundation um, and, uh, you know, we uh, funded it with a lot of seed money and then we'll match any funding that it picks up elsewhere. And its job is to take the talent of our people, whatever their background, and drive diversity, especially the kind of diversity we talked about now, um, uh, in our company and elsewhere, um, on a permanent ongoing basis. I hope that we're making the right moves. Uh, in terms of what it does for us as a company, it's interesting. Like our first office we opened, uh, and, you know, Leicester. I don't know how well you know the UK, but yeah. in Leicester, yeah, and Leicester's the most diverse city in, in yeah. Britain. Um, and it's been an incredible experience because our Leicester workforce reflects diversity. It brings tremendous talent mm -hmm. and it creates a home for people, you know, within our company, which they may not have had elsewhere that enables them to fulfill their dreams and bring society along with it. it and it definitely demonstrates, it gives us um, the opportunity to provide better service. And, and, you know, I know this is quite niche, but I did spot a fantastic tweet. Uh, sorry, a fantastic, a fantastic message on Slack, which is, you know, we use for internal messaging, uh, where someone said, hey, I've got a customer on the phone who's speaking uh, Punjab. Is there anyone, or Urdu, actually, sorry. Uh, is there anyone on the team that can, can um, speak to them? And, you know, there's a whole bunch of team members held their hands up and were able to speak to that customer. And then I realized uh, we've got 54 languages in our company to enable us to support customers. If you think about the exclusion for a customer who doesn't speak the language well enough to understand an energy bill, understand what's going on with the direct debit, they're excluded. Yeah. And, and, and it's a very basic thing, but you know, the ability to look after those customers in this very dynamic way, it made me so proud. Yeah, that's, that's cool. And that's, that's, I would say that's really a, a thoughtful approach and, and very mature, you know, in terms of, you know, a lot of people, I see a dynamic I'm seeing today is back here, a lot of companies are putting in diversity and inclusion heads. Um, but really not getting at, the, now I don't, I don't mean that's a bad thing to do. You need to have some pivot point at the top, but then it's like, they're slow to really learn what it takes to build and attract, retain and fully develop diverse candidates. And I was just curious. Dennis, I was gonna say, I, I, just one quick thing on that. Yeah, I meet, I meet all of the new recruits that join our operations team. I meet them during um, their training sessions. Yes. And um, there was an amazing thing where, where a couple of women from, I guess, South Asian heritage, um, Indian, Pakistani kind of um, heritage. Um, one of them said, it's really great for the first time to be working in a company where I'm not, where I know I'm not there to tick a box. Yes. And the other one said, me too. And listening to them talking about this and knowing that we've created an environment where we're recruiting them because they're the best at what they do. And I think that has been incredibly exciting. And the choice of Leicester uh, as your first office, was that an intentional choice um, around getting access to diverse, a diverse talent base for you? It was one of the components, yeah. It was all about people. So what we wanted was um, we wanted access to um, uh, a diverse population, largely of graduates, although we're opening that up now. And Leicester's a city with two universities in the city centre with, with a very high stay in Leicester, right? Um, but also where they had access to quality of life. So looking at the amenities in and around the city and really importantly, where um, uh, housing was affordable so that they can live near work um, and enjoy 
you know, sort of not having to scrimp and save, uh, but, but can live decent, um, happy, fulfilling lives whilst working for us and doing so in a sustainable way. So it's a very much a city which is focused on uh, walking and cycling to work in public transport rather than cars. So it's kind of consistent with our ethos, but really putting the quality of life of our people at the very front of the decision making. Yeah, and it shows. I noticed uh, when I was doing a little research on your company, your glass door and your trust pilot ratings are four, eight out of five. And it's like, that's terrific, which is part of yeah. building for, for people that want to join a company because they're, they're going to go do independent uh, comments around what's it like to work here. And, and a four, eight out of five is pretty damn good. Yeah, I think we're really proud of that. And, and um, we create very much a listening organization. So, for example, I mentioned Slack earlier. And, yeah, the senior management spent a lot of time on Slack listening to the team. All our offices are open plan so that um, – and, and um, uh, there's no kind of hierarchy in the offices, you know, the, the sort of the um, – enabling everyone to have free and easy conversations about what we're doing well, what we need to do better. And then, uh, you know, things like Glassdoor really do open up the opportunity to, to see what – you know, if someone wants to write something on Glassdoor, they're either telling the rest of the world this is a great company because they, they want to attract more people to work with, or they're telling the world it's a terrible company. You, you know, it's a cry for help. We need to listen to both. And then there's a, there's a great app actually called Office Vibe where we get kind of daily and weekly feedback from people. It's kind of continually running. We'll ask them one question. They'll answer that, and, and that will keep coming back in. And again, the thing with Office Vibe is not to treat it as a KPI, but to look at the, the reasons people are saying what they're saying so we know what we need to address. And then every week I get a whole company together for something we call family dinner. I noticed and, that um, family dinner type of thing. Yeah, and, and family dinner is really about, it, it, was, it, it grew up when we first had a startup, not this one, but different one, but where every Friday we were going to the pub and there were two of us to begin with and three and four or five. And what you found was um, the tensions that often end up becoming a rift in a company fall apart when you actually spend time together um, remembering how great your colleagues are and how focused they are on the same goals as you and it just happens sometimes that the mission or the, the goal you've been set or the job you've got to get done or the different function you're working in sets you apart um, and we've got to make sure that you know for example the classics you get you know finance and marketing or you know tech and operations these are functions where of course, sometimes they're going to have a, you know, experiences together which are non-positive. And you've got to remember, it's not about the people because the people are great. Mm -hmm. And as long as we keep coming back and remembering that, then when something goes wrong in tech, the business shouldn't be saying, my oh, God, tech's useless. They should be saying, oh, I'm so glad we've got a tech function. They're trying new things. And of course, it'll go wrong sometimes. And I know they're dedicated to sorting it. Mm -hmm. Similarly, when the business write a spec that doesn't cover off kind of properly what needs to be done in tech, the tech people go, that's totally cool. Business people can't be expected to write perfect specs. It is our job to be flexible around understanding what they really need. And, and, and creating that kind of real understanding is so important. Which is a nice segue to, um, to your BBC interview. I, I was, uh, I, I watched and I had, I had, I laughed, I smiled. I thought it was, I thought it was really good. This is on HR and IT support. Uh, HR in particular, and um, you know, having spent 40 years in the in the field, I've had my share of let's say policy police that worked for me that saw their role as um, you know catching people to act of doing something wrong as as opposed to the opposite behavior, or 
doing things that would optimize the function, but would not contribute to the business. So it might look good at a external conference, the real whiz bang PowerPoint, here's what we're doing with a language that is un, unknown other than the HR function. So I was just curious, you, you put forward a very different proposition in terms of problem solving needs to happen within the organization. There's no third party that's really required from quote an HR function. How, how did the, that philosophy get formed and how do you operationalize that, Greg? Yeah, so first of all, how it got formed was, um, we talked earlier about um, my experience with you that learning that um, for managers, building the organization, the people, was at least as important as business results. That's a really important thought because it tells you that um, a manager is a, per, is a people manager. You can't be a manager if you're not a people manager. Um, the second thing is that when I've started businesses or run small businesses, you don't have those functions. And yet, you know, I've found time and again that some of the small businesses I work with or have worked, you know, have run or whatever, have had happier people working more productively than large organizations. Mm -hmm. And you ask yourself, why is that? And when you look at it, you'll see it's because the person running the business is spending time every day with their delivery drivers, their receptionists, their kind of salespeople, their account managers, whatever the functions are. And, um, and listening to them and understanding kind of what, um, what's needed to motivate them and what's needed to keep them kind of uh, happy and, and to enable them to be fulfilled. And you often find these really happy teams. And it's because you haven't parceled person management into a separate function and then kind of tick the box. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then the question became like, well, if you can do that in a company of 10 people or 20, how can you do it in a company of 50 or 100 or 500 or 1,000 or whatever we go? And because, you know, if the, if the, if the business owner of a, a shop employing 20 people can do it, surely one of our team leaders with 20 people on the team can do it. And, and if that's the case, let's just scale it. Now, that's not necessarily, that's the HR question. Yeah. I think there's a bigger one, which is HR happens to be a function, a large function in many organizations. So it's quite totemic. But then there's another bit, which is you spot, whenever you inject a function into a business, you might start with one person. And, that, and you're doing that because there's some work to be done. And yeah. you thought it'd be more efficient to employ someone to do it than people doing it off the side of their desk or whatever. Um, now, once they've done that work, because it may not need doing forever, mm -hmm. they start looking around for something else to do. And of course, you know, if your job is filling in holes, pardon? It's called mission creep. It's mission creep, yeah. If your job is filling in holes, you look all around the business, you'll see holes that can be filled. By the way, the business would probably be fine if you didn't fill the holes, but now you've spotted them, you're gonna fill them. And before you know it, you're actually quite busy filling holes. So you need some additional hole fillers yeah. and when you've got them, first of all, half your time is spent managing your hole fillers and the other half time is filling the holes. And of course, they end up getting busy. But not only that, all the time you're doing this job, you're creating work elsewhere in the company. I mean, take HR again, not to criticize HR because I'm just talking about how it often works in some companies. Sure. Um, but they're, you know, the work that they're doing creates work elsewhere as well. Now, a lot of the, obviously everyone feels it's worthwhile. No one's being, no one's necessarily being self-serving. But, Every bit of work that they're doing is creating work and court. And, and so you're kind of getting a whole new function that's creating work for itself and then creating work for others. And the work that the others are doing is distracting them from the work they're meant to do. Right. 
which means that you then need to hire more of them. And, and before you know it, you're creating big bureaucracies. And, and that, that's not about HR, it's just about any function. So yeah, the extent to which it. we can eliminate functions, that's the idea. Yeah, I get it. Uh, and I think that's right. It's really putting the responsibility and the accountability together in management the, that's responsible for building the business and building the organization. I, I get it completely. You know, interestingly enough for me, uh, <clears throat> I, won't, I, won't, uh, I won't attribute this to the particular company, but I went into two, uh, went into the HR head role in two companies that they had outsourced recruiting to third parties. Like, why would you do that? And then secondly, the first thing I did when I went into this company unnamed is I had all the HR people shop with low-income consumers. I gave them $50. They spent a half day with a low-income consumer. And they came back and said, wow, uh, they have a very different life, A. B, um, gee, they're not buying our product. And then you go to the why, 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 why is that the case? And you start to get at that we had drifted away from what is really the core responsibility when you do have an HR function which is to enable the business to do the business better, period. And if you can't do that, then get out of the way. Um, now I happen to be the uh, rabble rouser, the malcontent, uh, the person that consistently got feedback in their career, because I'm later in my career, I don't really give a rip now, that you're too close to the business. It's like, how can you be not too close to the business? I, I don't really understand that concept, but I, I really applaud you. I, again, when I, read, I, when I watched the video, um, or the on, uh, online, I just smiled to myself because you crystallized the issue and the solution very nicely. Let's talk about CEO just for a minute, Greg. Hmm. You know, a lot of the CEOs I work with, they they kind of think about the CEO role as the loneliest job in the world. But I don't I don't get that from you. You know, I, I watched a lot of your videos. You, you seem to be very open, very engaged, very uh, like you don't have barriers. Uh, you're pr pretty much open book. How do you stay in touch in your role with the consumer, with the customer, with your own base of employees? How do you do that? Because a lot of lot of folks at the CEO level end up adopting this bubble. No bad news ever permeates the bubble. And so they live in an existence that really is not real. And then they get surprised later. How do you mitigate that? That's a great question. I mean, first of all, this thing about the CEO role being the loneliest in the world. There's one extent to which it's true, right? Um, as a CEO, you don't have peers. So there is, um, when, when you're, um, you know, I don't know, when I was an assistant brand manager at Procter & Gamble, 12 of us would go for lunch together yeah. and we all had the same kind of problems. We're on the same position. We could all swap notes and be very open and easy. And I think it does get, that is the one thing that is hard to do as a CEO because there is no one else in the company that has the same purview and role as you. Uh, although I think as you get more senior in companies, that happens, right? So as you approach the C-level, yeah. it becomes more and more the case for everyone. But outside of that, that you know, that I absolutely love talking to people and listening to them and understanding them. And um, so whether that be team members of any level, whether it be a co-founding CFO or CTO or our CMO, or the people that have just joined in any function, um, I find them, you know, look, people are kind of, we've all got incredible brains and insights. You know, it, it, I think hierarchies often encourage some people to think they're special, but the reality is, you know, you've got as much to learn from the guy in your corner shop mm -hmm. as you do from a C-level manager. Um, and the same goes with customers. Uh, it, it doesn't matter what we tell customers. 
our product and service are if they're experiencing something different. Um, and we get things wrong all the time. And we misunderstand and they surprise us with their reactions to things, positive and negatively. So I think I've received, and well, I think I've dealt with either by email or Twitter or whatever, over 30,000 individual customers in the five years we've had this business. Yeah. Um, and it's really interesting because I think this is one area where definitely my experience in corporate life, in this case, Procter & Gamble, yeah. actually is not something I've picked up on. At P&G, consumers were special, hmm. distant, scary. So we'd have focus groups where we'd put a piece of glass between us and them, mirrored glass, they couldn't see yes. us, and we'd watch them. Um, and actually, like what I found, particularly in today's digital world, is talking about things with them on Twitter or Facebook or email, um, sometimes even just picking up the phone, um, is vastly more meaningful because they're telling us in real time how they're feeling about the real experience they're really having. Yeah. And they're doing it in the context of their lives. You know, there's not, there's, we haven't kind of created this kind of false space. And actually that, for me, the tangibility of that has been both personally rewarding and energizing. And I think with both our own people and with customers and, and potential customers, and by the way, politicians and journalists and all the other people that are just people, it's an incredibly empowering way to run a business. Yeah, I mean, I thought what you're speaking to, I think, is, is, the, is being authentic in terms of that engagement um, and being timely in that. Um, again, a lot of big companies, you'll send in a consumer complaint and it goes through the layers and weeks, months go by and you might get a form letter back. Thank you. Thank you for your concern. It's like, really, you're not really thankful. You wish he hadn't, I hadn't contacted you to begin with. Um, it's, you know what, Dennis, it's been great funding. It's not just for me as CEO, but across the organization. So I, I sometimes think in, in those companies you described, um, there's a citadel, you know, there's a sort of great big thick wall hmm. to defend the executives and the team from customers. Mm -hmm. uh, and from the real world, you know, from journalists and everyone else. And, and instead, we kind of create what I call the porous organization. So, you know, if you email us with a complaint about the website, it should get rooted very quickly to the guy who designs the website. And by the way, that guy should write back to you telling you why we do what we do or what we might do differently or that you're quite right, but there's not a lot we can do right or whatever it be. Right. And I think that has empowered so many people internally to be to feel so much closer to the business than we would do otherwise. Yeah, fantastic. Hey, I, I know I, I know uh, your uh, your folks have told me that you got a hard stop. So I just had one more question for you, Greg, if I could, and that is advice you'd have for emerging leaders as they watch this webcast in terms of how they think about um, developing themselves and developing their career, no matter what what chosen occupation they're going to be in. I'm sure you get some good advice in terms of how you develop, how you um, how you create your own possibility as a young person entering into business. Great, I'd love to. So the first thing is, I think, in career terms, and forgive me for this, it's there's loads of exceptions and complexities to it, but honestly, nothing matters till you're 30, right? Um, so at the beginning of your career, I think you're trying to make sensible career choices, but the reality is that's a great time to be learning and finding what works for you. Mm -hmm. um, now, later on, it may not matter as much. I mean, you, you can carry on making decisions throughout your career. But the first thing is, when I speak to people at the beginning of their careers that are worrying about, is this the right path for me? You're going to find out by doing it. I think the second thing is, for people generally, uh, to be bold. Um, when you make a decision to do something, 
you may agonize over it because you will never have enough data to make it certain. Um, you'll only find out what happens when you do it. And that's particularly the case because very often when you do something, it unveils a whole new set of possibilities you didn't know about. Mm -hmm. So the best way of making a decision is just to do it. Yeah. Now, of course, it's easy to say that, but the question then is like, if it goes wrong, what are the real consequences, right? Because almost always the real consequences are manageable. And if they're manageable, um, then typically, I would say, you know, wait until you're 50% comfortable with something and then do it because you're never going to get to 100. And even getting to 80 is, you know, well, the 80 20 rule, right? It's going to take a long time to get there. So, yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. You know, I do a lot, I still do a lot of work on campuses. I'm, I'm on the board at Newcastle and Durham up north, and I'm around a lot of young people that are, we're, we're creating neurotic young people in that, you know, I don't know what I want to do. And it's like, well, you're 23, 24. I mean, go experience some things first. And at, at some point it'll click for you, but very few people come out of the womb knowing I want to be a doctor. I want to be this or that. It's life is full of experiences. Go out and get some at-bats to use the baseball analogy here in the U.S. And, you know, eventually it'll click in terms of what you want to do. And it'll be a nice match for your interests, desires, your motivation, and the challenge. And then go for it. But there's- exactly. I think a bit- the bit that really goes with that for me is too many people are doing what they're doing to please someone else, to please mm -hmm. the parents, um, a partner, to impress their friends. Honestly, like happiness comes when you're doing it because it's true to yourself. And I think the people I see who are happiest and most successful are nearly always the ones who have shed, like, uh, sort of face down that desire to please others. And instead of finding what is good for them. Yeah, that's that's a fantastic uh, high note to end on, Greg. Hey, it's it's it was a thrill for me to see you again. I mean, I, I was telling my wife, she's off shopping. And I said, I'm going to see this guy I haven't seen in 25 years. But one of these really good young folks that we had in our heyday at Brooklyn's when we were trying to recast the business in a different light. And it's so nice to see you and see what you've done. It's so impressive. And I want to come visit. Well, thank you. I'm coming to the UK. Well, you should. I'm coming to the UK on June 21st if Boris holds to his timing. And I'd love to pay a visit just to see what you've done up close and personal if you'd let me. I would love you to. And you know what, there are two things. First of all, we'll have a free coffee in the coffee area. And we'll <laughs> mill around with the team. Uh, and yeah. the second thing is you'll be following in the footsteps of uh, Catherine Nelson, who is my first brand manager at Proctor & Gamble, yeah. who signed up as a customer, yes. spotted my name at the bottom of the email, reached out. And I was so proud to invite her in in the same way. So, oh, you know, the stuff that, I said, the stuff that inspired me then still inspires me today. So thank you. You're very welcome. Uh, give my best to Catherine. She was another good one. Um, but listen, Greg, uh, good seeing you. And I, I couldn't be uh, happier for you or prouder uh, about what you've done. It's fantastic. You're making a dent in a business that needs, or in a sector that needs it. You're, you're driving a great business in a social responsible way. I mean, it's just the stuff of of legend, as they would say. It's a privilege, isn't it? And a joy. So. All right. Thank cool. you. Thank you. Well, great to see you. Okay. See, see you soon. soon.